Please open your Bibles to the book of James. As you know, we are working our way through the book very slowly. It's been a year, 20 sermons thus far, and so by God's grace, I will speed it up from this moment forward um, because some of these verses just, they, they cluster together and they deal with the same thing. Last week, we spent some time looking at the first two qualities mentioned in verse 19, uh, quick to hear and slow to speak, and this morning I'm going to finish with anger and then walk right into verse 20 because it's connected, and I'll explain that when I get there. And James's proposition here is that those who are changed by God in verse 18 will demonstrate a significant change in the life or in their lives, in the way that they hear the word, in the way that they speak, and in the way that they deal with their emotions. So in a synopsis format, James is saying, if verse 18 is true of you, if God has brought you forth by the word of truth, then these qualities will be certainly true of you as well. And so you have this great theological work that God does in verse 18, and the fruit of that work from verse 19 onwards. So in synopsis format, James provides his threefold outline to inform his saints that are hearing the, these words for the first time, do this and not that. And you'll see that coming out in a variety of different ways. Last week, I tried to provide a context for these words, hear and speak. And what I said to you was we need to think of these words in terms of how James and his audience, being Jews, would have understood it. And so I took some time, I know it was tedious, to give you a little bit of historical background to the Jewish understanding of the words hear and speak. I'm going to do for the same for anger. I think it will be helpful. I know that, like I said, it's a bit tedious because I'm just doing background filling. This morning we start to walk in and see the significance of those things. We saw that we must understand both hearing and speaking through wisdom literature. And hearing is more than just the audible um, sound that we hear. Hearing with the intent of doing is behind this word. Hearing is receiving the word and doing what the word requires of us. Speaking refers to being able to control your tongue. To have mastery over the member which illustrates what is happening in your heart. And so I pointed out that James has more in mind than just the hearing of the word and, the, and speaking in general. It has to do with a changed heart. It has to do with what you do with the word of God and how you respond to the word of God. Now as we continue, I want to look at anger and why anger should not be a normative response in the children of God. This should not be what we do on a normal basis. Now, we are reading this book, Respectable Sins, and I've noticed that Peter has slowed down to a snail's pace in the teaching, and I'm glad he did that because there's so much in it. And I think it's helpful that we are able to understand that we participate in these respectable sins more often than we are willing to acknowledge. We think it's okay. Anger, if you haven't noticed it, is in the book. I think it's number 15 or 13 down. Um, and then weeds of anger. This morning I'm going to point out why God hates anger. And that it is not justifiable to say, oh, I'm just expressing righteous anger. As if you can do what God does. Think about that as we move forward. I demonstrated, or at least I tried to last week, to show that both speaking and hearing relates to the heart. What is in the heart comes out on your tongue. If the heart is not right with God, you naturally reject the word of God. To be quick to hear refers to saints, Christians, being willing to hear the word of God and being willing to respond to the word of God. Being slow to speak refers not to speaking the word of God, but being quick with your tongue. Or should I say quick on your, with your fingers? Because that is speaking. We think it's okay for us to just snap back. If we understand the word of God with regards to being quick 
with your tongue, we will understand that a man who has no control over his tongue has no control over his spirit. And he is called a fool in the Old Testament. Those who hear and receive the word with the aim to do the word of God are God's people. That's the point that James is making. Verse 18 is true. Then, uh, if that is true, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Those who control their tongue and can bridle, bridle it are those whose heart has been changed by God and are willing to submit their lives to the word of God. James explains what he means by tongue and ears, or hear, um, in verse 22 through to 26, and we will look at that at later sermons. What about anger? How are we to understand anger? This morning we will see the effects of the new covenant, verse 18, upon the child of God. There is a threefold outline to this passage. I gave it to you last week. Uh, the result of salvation, verse 19 through to 21. The expectation of salvation, verse 22 through to 25. And the application of salvation, verse 26 through to 27. We are looking at the result. And I gave you two uh, points last week. This morning, we will continue to see both the effects of the new covenant and how it looks in God's people. Now, I didn't get to finish verse 19. I'm going to read it and then... Um, try to connect it to verse 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Thus far, may God bless the reading of his word. I didn't finish verse 19. I left anger out. And I'm glad I did because I was going to try to force it in. It connects very smoothly with verse 20. And you'll see that as we go on. But before I get to that, I want to take the time to explain what it means to be angry from the Old Testament point of view. Is anger justified? Is it ever justified? In the New Testament, anger is often related to the old life. For instance, in Colossians chapter 3, and you can correlate that with the Ephesians uh, parallel, uh, Paul says this, put them all aside, implication is now, anger, wrath, malice, take note of this, abuse of speech from your mouth. Colossians 3.8. We are quick to claim that, oh, I'm just expressing expressing righteous anger as a means to justify our anger. Can we rightly make that claim? Hmm. Often we also find in the Old Testament that hasty speech is connected to anger. For instance, go back to Proverbs chapter 17. Remember, I'm going to get to James, but I'm just sketching a picture of how the Bible speaks about hearing, speaking, and now anger. Proverbs 17, take note of verse 27. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. He who can control his temper, as one translate, uh, translation says, is a man who has understanding. But notice the connection. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. He who has control over his tongue has understanding, has knowledge. And he who is able to control his spirit has understanding. There's connection between the way that you use your words and the way that you control your temper. The quick-tempered person in this proverb, it suggests, is the person who is likely to speak without careful consideration, without thinking, because he's got no control over his temper. And so he just snaps and then says, oh, I really didn't mean to say that. Yes, you liar. Yes, you did. That's why it came out. We are 
quick to draw back and say, that is not what I meant. Listen, if it came out of your tongue, it's exactly what you meant. Why? Because Jesus says what is in the heart comes out of your what? Mouth comes from your tongue. So don't lie. Don't complicate it even more. All you have to do is ask forgiveness for what was in your heart. That is hard. Uncontrolled anger leads to uncontrolled speech. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Go over to Proverbs 14, 29. Listen to what Solomon says. This again relates to wisdom as I pointed out to you last week. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty Temper exalts folly. The fool is the man that cannot control his temper. The fool is the person that has no control over his soul or his spirit, and he is the one that snatches out at people because his tongue is not controlled, because he cannot control himself. The angry person lacks control. And so you hear it on his tongue. Control of anger is control of your spirit. Why does the Old Testament speak so negatively of anger? Go to Ecclesiastes. One of my boys are reading this. Is reading this. uh, Ecclesiastes. And uh, he cannot for the life of him pronounce... (laughs) the word Ecclesiastes. So don't ask him. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 9. And listen to the similarity with James. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Wow. It's almost as if James is speaking in a proverbial sense. Be quick to hear Slow to speak and slow to anger. Why? This is why. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of what? Fools. Remember what I said last week? The fool is equal to what? An unbeliever. So what does Ecclesiastes say? Don't act. Like a person who does not know God. Don't act like a person who is estranged or a foreigner to God. Because if you do, if you become angry, you act like an unbeliever, in other words. Somebody who has got no relationship with God. The fool is often spoken of in the Old Testament as the one who does not know God. The unbeliever, therefore the child of God, must not act in this way. And I know that some of you theologians are thinking, hang on, hang on, on. there's New Testament passages that gives quote-unquote permission for anger. If you're angry, do not what? Sin. What's the command? Do not sin. Is Paul advocating righteous anger? Is he saying, be angry but don't sin? Because that is often what we are saying the child of God is not to be angry because it does not do God justice God sorry anger is not an attribute or a justifiable characteristic of the people of God we are not angry people why because God has changed our hearts from being fools to being followers of Christ. Instead of living as those who are constantly angry at God and people and nature and circumstances, we are those who accept the will of God for our lives despite our wrongs and we don't get angry at God, at people and at circumstances. Anger is seldomly spoken of in good terms. When it is used of God, It is God's righteous anger on display. It is the righteousness of God that causes him to be angry with sin and sinners. 
And some of you may be thinking, well, can't then that apply to us? Let me define righteous anger for you. Righteous anger is sharing in God's anger over unrighteousness, end quote. Sharing in God's anger, not your anger for and against something or someone. Not your anger, not sinful anger. It is God's anger that you are participating in over wickedness and unrighteousness. That is admirable. When you say like David, that I um, am angry over the sinner that hates you. That is righteous anger. Screaming at politicians and taxi drivers is not righteous anger. Lashing out is not righteous anger. Righteous anger does not give the saint the right to sin in anger. So be careful when you are claiming righteous anger, but you are saying by the same time that the thing that you are angry about is unrighteousness, is what God hates. So then if, let's put this in a more practical sense, if you are displaying quote-unquote righteous anger in the home, is it over unrighteousness or over preference? Is it just because you just don't like certain things? And so you lash out. Do not claim righteous anger if it is not righteousness that you're, unrighteousness that you're angry over. Another element that we need to understand is that these descriptions of the tongue and the ears define the person. It tells us who he is. And that's why anger is connected to hearing and speaking. Because James, in a very synoptic format, in a, very, in a synopsis, says, this is who you should not be. Loose tongues, unresponsive ears, and angry hearts are not the standard for God's people. In other words, this is not descriptive of the one who has been born by God in the new covenant. It is important that James writes these things because they, being the first community of saints in the New Testament, those who split in Acts chapter 8 and uh, chapter 7 and 8, and then I think it's 11 and 12, um, under persecution, are the saints that's receiving this. They have no other than Jesus' verbal instruction that they received from the apostles. They have nothing in writing other than the Old Testament. So James is charting the course for what New Testament, I should say, New Covenant life looks like. Looks like. I think sometimes we forget that. That this is divine revelation and new to them. So he has to take the time to explain what God expects of us now that we are in the new covenant. So he does that. Why am I taking the time to show you how these words were understood in the Old Testament? Well, because James is writing with with an old... Did I say New Testament? Well, I meant Old Testament. Um... James is writing with an Old Testament understanding. He's writing as a Jew to Jews about what they as Jews should do now that the new covenant has come. These three are mentioned up in front in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person, every believer, everyone who's called or falls under the canopy of brothers, let them, they must be, I should say, Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. What you see here is a connection that these three have as a whole. They describe the entire person as a whole. An unwise person is the one who does not listen to the word of God. The one who speaks quickly without thinking. The one whose anger controls him and he has no control over his anger. The unwise man is an unbeliever in the eyes of the Old Testament. And so James says, we don't want to be like that. This is how we should be. 
So when James presents these three as a necessary outcome of being saved by the word of truth, he is in fact saying that this is a changed person. That is the connection. Know this, knowing the fact that God saves by means of the word of truth, that results in a changed life. Therefore, because of that, we have this command, let every person, let every believer be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. A changed life, that means coming to God by means of the word of truth, results in a changed walk. James is calling for a wise walk. He's wanting them to refuse the natural, normative, sinful impulses that they used to have. He wants them to come to understand what it means to live under the uh, authority of the word of God. Which means we cannot excuse quick to speak, quick to anger, and a reluctance to the word of God as something light. Because James describes the effect, the net result of verse 18 in verse 19. If you are a child of God, you will be, that's why you have the command, you must be. Quick to hear. One author says, there is a willingness to submit yourself to the word of God in whatever format it is found. He goes on to say that if it is preached, you want to be there. If it is taught, you want to be there. There is a desire to submit your life under the word of God, quick to hear the word of God for the sake of doing God's will. And yet, in today's age, we find excuses. COVID has provided thousands, if not millions, thousands of Christians an excuse to stay away from God's people and from hearing the word of God. James says the opposite. Be quick to submit yourself to the word of God. Where it's preached, be there. When it's taught, be there. Why? Because God changes lives by means of his word. And if we neglect his word, not willing to hear his word, there is a question. So James connects the fact and the reality that verse 18, if that is true, if you have been brought forth by the word of truth, you are going to desire to be under the word because the word changes lives. You cannot say, well, I have spiritual ADD. I just can't pay attention. I fall asleep when you preach. Well, I'm sorry. I can't help you with that. You cannot say, well, I'm just a naturally grumpy old man. There's not a lot of them here, but I'm just saying. You cannot say that. That That's just who I am. Not at all. Remember the connection. You've been saved by the word of truth, which means that there is a changed heart. And as a result of that, you are going to desire it. And then as a result of that, you are going to want to do that. And I'm going to prove that to you. This is James's expectation. That's why he uses the word year and not listen. He makes the connection that those who have been born by God, by means of the word of truth, are changed by God, and therefore there's a significant change in their lives. They demonstrate the qualities found in verse 19. So why should we not get angry? Well, here's the reason. Look at verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There you go. This is why you should never get angry. Your anger does not produce the righteousness of God. The very first element that he deals with, remember there are three, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then he doesn't start with quick to hear, he starts with anger. So having given the synopsis, the three bullet points saying, this is what you should look like, now he goes into the... um, realm of meddling. 
telling them what it practically looks like. Why you should not get angry. He speaks about the inability to or failure of anger. Anger cannot produce the things that God desires. It's a very interesting phrase, anger of man. Um, some of your translation would say angry person or people um, for the sake of including everybody. But it's literally man's anger. Man as distinct from woman. A masculine man. He doesn't use anthropos. He uses aneir. And he doesn't use the generic term for mankind in saying all uh, anger. He uses a masculine anger. And all the women says, oh, thank you. This is not for me. Well, man and the anger of man has to be understood in terms of who the brothers are, right? Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person generally be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man, whoever the, the people are receiving the word, this would apply to them. Now, it could make contextually, uh, contextual sense that he's speaking to men because they are meeting in a what? Chapter 2, verse 1, was verse 2, in a synagogue, which predominantly were men. So it could make sense that way. But I don't think he limits it to men because the brothers are those who he, who, who he has in mind. But the anger of man, it's the standard of anger that he, he speaks about. Because in Jewish literature and in that time, men were equated with bursts of anger. When anger was demonstrated, it was generally the man who did it. Speaking of men does not mean that women are excluded in this. Men always express the anger visibly. And despite that reality, we should take this in the light of the fact that he mentions beloved brethren prior to this, brethren prior to this, so he includes everyone in it. The entire audience, the church. He says, our anger does not produce the righteousness of God. The word produce here is very important. You want to highlight that because it qualifies the rest of the sentence. It tells you how to understand the rest of the sentence. And I know there is a complication with understanding the rest of the sentence. And that's why I mentioned it. It means to bring about, to accomplish, to bring to fruition. And I will come back to that and show the significance of it. But most commentaries and uh, articles focus on this last part of the sentence, the righteousness of God. James says, your anger does not produce God's righteousness. How should we understand God's righteousness in this passage? The Old Testament speaks of righteousness as God being the bestower of it. David in Psalm 35 verse 24 says, vindicate me in your righteousness. So God then is to act to deliver David because of who he is. It is righteousness that he himself, by himself, possesses. What it envelops is not just justice and moral excellence, but also the divine responsibility to fulfill his word that he has promised. In other words, God's righteousness often focuses on the act of vindication. Isaiah 46.13 tells us that. God acts and provides a covering to and for his people so that they may be found before him. Who can stand before the Lord? Psalm 15. Well, those who have been given righteousness and that is demonstrated in how they live. These passages and others become the basis of God's righteousness in the New Testament. And that is how Paul uses it. God acts to justify his own righteousness for his glory by bestowing his righteousness on sinners. That's how Paul explains righteousness. However, if that is what we are thinking when we hear the righteousness of God here, we would be wrong. That is not what James means. Now James shares God's understanding, uh, Paul's understanding of, he has to share God's understanding of it. Paul's understanding of righteousness in chapter 2, I believe. And we will get to that when we speak about that. But here he does not have imputed righteousness. 
or the vindication of the individual in mind. James has practical righteousness in view. It is not correct to interpret this to mean that we must refuse to be angry with the word because the reception of the word produces divine bestowed imputed righteousness. It is true that when you receive the word and your life has changed, the imputation of Christ's righteousness is granted to you so that you can be found in God. That is true. This is not what he means though. He's not talking about receiving the word and refusing to be angry with the word. James is talking about man's anger as a demonstration of his heart. That anger can never put you in a right standing with God. That is true. But I don't believe that is what he means. Number one. Actually, not number one. My transition to number one. In normal circumstances, the, I'm going to use a technical term here, syntactical construction would imply purpose. Um, the, the way that it's been put together, it would imply purpose for the purpose of producing the righteousness of God. But there is some challenge with that because it doesn't follow the normal rules. And so I don't hold to that view. We must not see the use of righteousness here through the eyes of Paul. Number one. James predates Paul. He's not thinking righteousness of God in terms of the vindication or the imputed righteousness of of Christ. Secondly, the context here is not being justified, but having been justified. Verse 18. Thirdly, this falls under the section that deals with application. Then, if that is the case, the implication is that somehow we in our doing can produce God's righteousness in our own lives. And it's often used like that by non-Orthodox Christian um, cults. Well, clearly, we can produce God's righteousness. We just don't have to be angry. Don't be angry, and you will produce God's righteousness. Well, that's a misuse and misunderstanding of the entire section. Again, verse verse 18 deals with salvation. You're already saved. This is confirmed in the beginning of verse 19. My beloved brothers... This is confirmed in verse 21, therefore put away. So then, how do we understand it? James is talking about practical righteousness. He's talking about the way that we live that would please God. I think there's one translation, I forgot which one it is, maybe I have it in my notes, that uh, translates it that way. Yeah, no, I don't. To understand this better, we must take the meaning of righteousness in the light of the controlling verb. What is the controlling verb? I gave it to you. Produce. Which means it, anger, cannot accomplish God's righteousness. This verb gives the idea to bring about, to produce something to work towards something. And the object here is God's righteousness. This word makes it extremely implausible for James to be saying that righteousness is imputed because somehow we've set aside anger and as a result of that, God grants us righteousness. No, he's talking about you producing righteousness. That is Practical righteousness. That is you demonstrating that you have imputed righteousness and therefore as a result of that, you demonstrate, you live righteously. Surely we do not think that in and of us, we in and of ourselves are able and capable to produce righteousness. We cannot. We cannot produce anything that will be pleasing to God. That would be right standing. It was the NIV that um, I had in mind and they, they translated as follows, anger does not produce a righteous life that God is pleased with. Or something to that effect, I can't remember the exact language. Anger does not bring about the righteous living that God is pleased with. Even though I, I don't like the translation, it captures the sense. The implication is living, not standing. Does that make sense? The implication is how you demonstrate your justification rather than how you become justified. 
That's already taken place in verse 18. So as a result of that, in the result of being saved by the word of truth, you live righteously. You live in a way that pleases God. So again, what we have here is practical righteousness. Anger. Man's anger cannot bring about practical, wise acts of righteousness which God would be pleased with. How do I know that? Other authors authors say the same thing that James says. Maybe they're quoting him. I don't know. That 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore sins on the tree. What do you call that? Salvation, right? That's how God imputes his righteousness to us through the Son. That we may die to sin. Is that salvation? No, that's post-salvation. And live to righteousness. Is that salvation? No, that's not. This is post-salvation. So salvation first, and as a net result of that, you kill sin and you live towards righteousness. That is what James is saying. You've already been saved. As a result of that, live righteously. But your anger will never produce righteous living. Listen to 1 John chapter 3.10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Take note. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Does that mean the practice of righteousness leads us to God? No, he's not saying that. Because he's already mentioned in chapter, uh, I think it's just a couple of verses prior to that, I don't want to misquote, um, that it is God who saves, it is God who justifies, it is God who changes lives, and as a result of that, you live righteously. This is also practical righteousness. Again, the verb there is the same verb, to do, to perform, to practice, to live out. There is a difference between that which is given to us by God through Christ, that's called imputed righteousness, and that which is demonstrated as a result of that righteousness given to us in Christ. That is practical righteousness. This is what James is speaking about. In this passage, James is talking more about the result or the outcome of imputed righteousness. This is what I call practical righteousness. This is visible in the next couple of verses. James shows here that God saves and the children who are born of God by means of the word live to please him. So therefore, angry people do not produce right living. That's the point. Angry people cannot live righteously before God. They don't do the things that pleases God. It sets forth practical righteousness which should characterize those who have been born by the word of truth. Anger doesn't please God. Something in my eye. So we cannot justify it on any level. You cannot engage in anger and say, well, God will just You'll just forgive me. James is talking about the state of the man. If verse 18 is true, if you've been born by the word of truth, then verse 21 should not be true. You should not live a life of anger. That's the point. You can engage in the study of anger yourself. In fact, um, I mentioned it. Please read anger and weeds of anger in respectable sins. But this is one of those things that we so quickly sweep under the rug of our own righteousness. We cover it, thinking, oh, it's fine. Just move on. Let me bring it down to the most simplest illustrations in our life. Pastors who get angry with saints that anger will not produce righteousness in those saints, nor in your own life. In the home, anger at people will not produce the righteousness God would be pleased with in their lives, nor in your own life. Anger expressed against anyone or anything, and you may be thinking, yeah, what about taxes? Mm. Did you not listen to Peter this morning? What about that old little old lady who, who 
jumped the queue at Pick and Pay, and now is taking out the entire collection of 10 cent coins that she's put together just for that sale. And then she counts it out. Anger will not produce a life that is pleasing to God. How you respond demonstrates what has taken place in your heart. But why would he say this? Why why does he mention quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? Because they speak of a person as a whole. And I've been trying to make that point very clear that James is thinking of the entire person that has been changed. If verse 18 is is true, then the entire person changes. The heart desires the word, the tongue is controlled, and the emotions are changed. We don't act like we used to. The whole man is in view. He's he's saying what Paul articulates better with with relating to the child of God, or John speaking uh, about the new man. So what is James saying here? This is not you. And this should not be you. It's a plea for change. Why? Because sin interferes, take note of this, with the reception of the word of God. Sin gets in the way of you hearing the word of God, not only rightly, but applying the word of God to your own life. It's like the wax that gets stuck in your ears or putting cotton buds, what do you call it, cotton, 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 balls in your ear. You don't hear everything clearly. It's like when you reach 50, done. Things don't always, (laughs) you don't hear things the way that it should be heard. That crystal clear, clear table is not as crystal clear as it used to be. Sin does that in our lives. We don't hear the word the way that we should. We don't receive the word the way that we should. And this can be proven in verse 21. So now we said, there's a new life in verse 19. There's a new, a new emotion, a new change in verse 20. And in verse 21, he proves what he's just said. It's a plea for change. Why? Since sin interferes in our lives uh, and causes us not to hear and receive the word properly, we need to deal with our sin. We have seen the immediate effect of the new covenant. Now let's, let's look at the immediate change. There's a connective in verse 21. Therefore, therefore, very emphatic, looking back at what was just mentioned. It's inferential. can also be uh, translated for this reason. James is making the point that if you have been changed by the word of truth, then the word of truth must continue to change the ones that received it. This verse breaks up into two parts, and they're both connected. There's putting aside sin, and there's taking up the word. Let's look at the first change. It is setting aside. Therefore, put away all filthiness and the rampant wickedness. Pause there. In this verse, James says, Since salvation is true of you, since there is new life granted, therefore, there must be a putting away of the old Life. Does that sound Pauline? It does. Should we call it Pauline? No. Because James writes before Paul, so Paul is sounding Jamin. <laughs> he sounds like James because they came to understand what the new covenant life looks like. It's a putting off and a putting on. There's moral change that takes place. In almost every letter that Paul writes, he mentions a putting off of a moral past life and a putting on of a new life. There's one significant thing that James does different, and you'll see it in a moment's time. Put away all filthiness. What is meant by this? The words here or filthiness, or rather the putting away, literally relates to somebody taking his clothes off. 
was used of those who ran in the Olympics, those who ran in races, they would run half naked. They would take their clothes off and only have something covering the, the, the necessary parts. They would rid themselves of clothes. It was used of those who were working in the fields for about a month and it's time to change your clothes. You would literally take off that stinky, dirty clothes. It's that dirt that is stuck to the clothes, that filth that is stuck to the clothes that's in view. It's, it's used in chapter 2 of the poor man. Notice what it says in chapter 2, verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man wearing shabby, that is stinky, dirty clothes, comes in. It's that idea of that filthy garment that is removed. It must be put away. James says, believers, those who have been changed by God, in verse 18, need to put away filthiness and rank growth of wickedness. Both of these relates to the remnants of sin. Now this should be encouraging to you. Because there are those who have come to Christ and then find themselves month, two months, three months down the line returning to a sin. And thinking, oh, I'm not saved. Can't be true of me. Can't be saved. James is writing to believers. And look at the command. He says, put away. Well, it's, it's actually a participle. It's not a command. But it has an um, imperative implication. Put away. Take it off. All filthiness and rampant wickedness. The literal sense of the word here is that which, is, which remains of sin or wickedness. I think it's the NSB that translates it that way. That which remains of wickedness. It's a good translation. This is a vivid word picture. And James is saying, take off your filthy attitudes and actions, that moral defilement, your soiled garments of sin, remove it from you. It implies a disassociation, a rupture from former association, a cutting off, a separation, a departure. When you've put that clothes down, you're no, you no longer have it on you. That's the point. Remove it from you. The imagery is often applied metaphorically of stripping things off. And Paul uses this word, Quite often. They are to put away sordid immorality or a state of corruption, vulgarity. This became a common use from this point on to speak of getting rid of the remnants of sin in your life. Filthiness. It's used in chapter 2, which I pointed out in the shabby uh, clothing there. The man was caught, he stained with dirt. However, here it relates to that which is not pure and must be removed from us. I'll finish in five minutes' time. The book of Revelation shows us that filth is the opposite to holiness and righteousness. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness and let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Filthiness and pollution is opposite to righteousness and holiness. The last phrase here, that which remains of wickedness must be taken together with what James just said, coupled together with moral filth. Sometimes translations would say abundant or surplus of evil. Young's literal um, translation says it this way, a superabundance of evil. Another option of the Greek uh, translation here, which I prefer, is the remainder of evil. All that remains of wickedness. All that remains of evilness. In other words, there is still trace elements of sin in your life. You've been saved. And you are in the process of being sanctified. But there's still trace elements of your past life in your life. And that is what you need to get rid of. 
The idea of putting it away means to get rid of it. Take the coat off, put it down. The, I think it's the New King James and the King James Version brother has the, uh, let me see if we can find it, has the translation uh, superfluity of naughtiness. Mm, I don't like that. Uh, the, the idea of naughtiness normally we associate with mischievous uh, children, like my kids, right? Um, but not with, with rampant wickedness. That's a different idea. I prefer the, the remnant of sin relating to wickedness and evil. What does this mean? It means that though we are saved by God, and though God's work in salvation is perfect, there remains trace elements of the old sinful nature. You are saved, don't get me wrong. But you still have elements of sin in you. You still sin. So what James is saying is that you need to get rid of that. God has perfectly saved you. You are saved. Your soul is sanctified. You will get to glory, but you need to kill sin. Why? This is the coupling, and this is what I like about James's writing, which is similar but different to what Paul says. Put away wickedness and the the remains of sin. Why? And receive with meekness the implanted word. Put those two together. If you don't deal with sin, you cannot what? Rightly receive the word. To receive the word, you must deal with what? Sin. That is what he's talking about. The only way you can kill sin is by receiving the word. The only way that you do not live a life that is righteous before God and pleasing to God is by not receiving the word. They go together. Killing sin implies receiving the word. Receiving the word implies that you're putting sin to death. If you don't do both, you will have cotton in your ears and not hear the word properly and not be willing to apply the word to your life. The complement of putting off sin is putting on the word. I have so much to say here. Maybe we can cover it on on, uh, Wednesday. But let me end on this. Why does James speak about the implanted word? There's a thesis written on just that, the implanted word. A lot of pages to read. The question that we have to ask is, is he talking about believers? If so, what does it mean that it will save your soul? If he's talking about unbelievers, it makes sense. It will save their soul. So what does the implanted word mean? Because that then defines how we understand saving your soul. Where does this come from? Where does the implanted word come from? Well, I pointed out to you a couple of sermons ago that James is referencing Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel chapter 36 with regards to God's work in salvation. He alone is the one that saves. But Jeremiah 31, 33 says that I will take my law and put it in your heart. I will give you a new heart and take note of this. Both of them says it and cause you to obey my law. James is understanding something here. And he says that if verse 18 is true, then the covenant, new covenant has been fulfilled, which means God has taken his law and he's put it in our hearts. He's using analogy of the soil. God has planted the word in our hearts. So then, that would refer to a believer. So then what does it mean then that you will be saved? Because that's what it says at the end of the verse. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. And some guys say, well, it's when you receive the word, then you will be saved. But that is not what he's saying. He says, receive the word. The implanted word. So in other words, don't resist the word that God has already given in your heart. He's already placed it in your heart. There is two things that's taking place. God places the word of God in your heart. And then there's the external preaching of the word of God that resonates with the word inside. And those who are God's people, verse 18, those who are God's people, their hearts cannot resist the word preached 
That's why he says be quick to hear. They cannot refrain from hearing the word of God and receiving the word of God and doing the word of God. Why? Because God has already put a receiver in the heart of God's people. There's already a connection. So he says receive the external word now, the implanted word. Receive that which is outside internally because the internal word will confirm the external word preached. That's why some of you who were in charismatic churches, when you sat there, the internal word did not sit right with the external word preached. And you said, I can't be any longer. I need to go where the word of God is preached. Because something changes in your heart when God places his word in your heart. There is a new desire and a new way in which you receive God's word. He changes that. James is looking back into Old Testament prophecy, especially the new covenant. He says, this is that. So let me answer the question, the big question. What does it mean to save your soul? I love this because I love eschatology. He's not talking about being saved now because you are saved. He's talking about what will take place. So let me put it in, in big picture perspective. <clears throat> if verse 18 is true, you are saved. If God brought you forth by the word of truth, he takes the word, he puts it in your heart so that you can seek out the word. There's a desire and obedience, a, a willingness to obey God's word. He says, I will cause you to obey it. So why would you not want to sit under the word? And as a result of that, if the word is implanted and you do not reject the word, it means that you're saved, which means you will be saved. Look what it says. Receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, which has the capacity, the power, the ability to save your souls. That is promissory. James is thinking, if this is true, we will, yes, true, be saved forever. But there's a future deliverance for Israel. There's a future salvation. That's eschatological. That is still to come. Look at what he says in chapter 5. He never leaves the idea that the Lord is coming. Be patient, therefore, brothers, verse 7, until the coming of the Lord. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our <clears throat> Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. As you hold faith in the one who is to come, the Lord of glory. James speaks about the fact that you will be saved. There is a promise that God has made to his people. Remember, speaking to Jews, it does apply to us, but he's speaking to Jews saying, that if, if God has changed us, if he's fulfilling the new covenant, then we will be saved. It's a guarantee. The new covenant promise is not void of a future promise of salvation. And we can talk about what that salvation looks like in, on Wednesday. <clears throat> This is why I withheld application and personalizing the passage. Because James is so practical. He says a lot here. Live righteously. Don't be angry. Pursue the word of God. Hear the word of God. What is fundamental in the explication of this application is that the word of God is central. You're saved by it. Now go and hear it and then do it. These applications are relevant to you today, 2,000 years later. If God has saved you, there must be a complete change in your life. There must be. It's not optional. This change will be seen in how you respond to the word of God, how you desire the word of God, and how you kill sin in your life. So what's the point? The word of God changes lives. That's, that's what he's saying. If it's true that you have been saved, you will be changed. Madahan is not Indian. He says, it may sound Indian, quote, choose not the lowly paths of sin when lofty heights before you rise. God freely gives the power to win the victor's crown and heavenly prize. God wants us to pursue him so that we may live a life that is pleasing to him.
Father, sanctify by your word. Your word is truth. Save by your word, because through your word, you save. Set us on a path of righteousness by means of your word, because only your word can lighten the path of righteousness. We need you to change us. Those who need saving, save. All of us need sanctifying. So, Lord, sanctify for your glory. Amen.